story. My name is Matt Stone, and I'm here today with Calissa Dodderman. Calissa, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Matt. It's good to be here. Likewise, glad to be here. Excited to talk about a couple chapters in 2 Samuel that, for me, are some of the most interesting, some of the most baffling, and some of the most profound chapters in, really, not just in First and Second Samuel, but really in the Old Testament. You know, you look at some of the things that go on in Second Samuel chapter 6, and you think, oh my goodness, who, who is this God, and what is happening? Uh, and then you look in Second Samuel 7, and you think, oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> from a different, from a different right. perspective, this, uh, this is a God of generosity and grace uh, that exceeds anything that we've ever known. So uh, six, and seven, 6 and 7 are fascinating chapters, and excited to dig in. A little with you today, Calissa. So, uh, Calissa, catch us up uh, as we launch into Second Samuel six. What's happening? Oh yeah. Okay. So, well, I mean, first things first. We're in Second Samuel, which means Saul is dead, and Saul's sons are dead, and David is king. Um, so we've kind of entered into uh, the new the new chapter of of this overarching narrative. Right. David is is king. Um, so he's not just the promised king. He's no. not just the anointed king. He's actually king at this right, point. Right, right. And I feel like throughout throughout the um, past few weeks when we've been talking about David, um, we have, of course, always held in our head this presumption that, oh, this is King David. Um, but, you know, this is where this is actually happening. And so at the beginning of Second Samuel, you're kind of experiencing, well, honestly, it's it's... It's similar to what we've experienced before, right? There are um, lots of military battles. David is triumphant in these battles. But what is new about this is that the outcome um, and David's kingship lead to a unification of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And so this is all of the tribes of Israel, those 12 tribes born of the 12 sons of Jacob, or as as we sometimes call him, Israel. Um, and, And this is a... This is a remarkable and important historical moment for for the Hebrew people. Yeah, I, I think it's important for a host of reasons too, right? It's not just the beginning of really one of only two tenures as a united kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Where the northern Israel and southern Israel are united under one king. But the other thing that we see in 2 Samuel 5 is that Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. And a lot of times, I think in our minds, Jerusalem from the very beginning of the Bible was the capital of Israel. It has always been Jerusalem. But it's really not true. No. It's David who, who, um, uh, who overtakes Jerusalem and establishes it as the capital in 2 Samuel 5. It's from that moment forward that Jerusalem becomes the center of the universe. Before that, Shiloh is the center of the Israelite world. Mm-hmm. After that, from that point to this day, Jerusalem has, is the center of the world for uh, for the people of uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, and I think it's it's also worth n- noting that as that shift takes place, um, we we start hearing. Jerusalem referred to in the text as the city of David, a city of David. Um, and I, I don't know, I think that's just worth noting because A, for, for many of us, we think about the city of David and, uh, you know, that has um, some foreshadowing to the Christ narrative for us. But then it's also, I think, 
really centering David in this narrative in a way that um, we, I think, aren't quite used to, right? That um, that as king, David would be able to claim all of these cities, that they would really be linked to his pride and his kingship. Um, because so far, what we've learned about David is that he is a man after God's own heart. All of his triumph, all of his strength comes through God. And um, yet, and yet, we're, we're hearing all these things about what belongs to David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what David can lay claim to. Um, and, you know, there's, I have to say at the back of my head, this little nagging voice saying like, oh, don't you mean God's city? Don't, don't you mean God's triumph? Um, and, you know, that comes through the scripture, but it also, um, you have to dig to get there. Yeah, so lots going on in the first five chapters of Second Samuel. Mm-hmm. And as, this, as chapter six opens up, it's so interesting. Um, David's one of those guys that... that we can spend time praising. We can spend time criticizing. It's interesting what happens in his first kind of move after establishing Jerusalem as the capital. What happens? What's his first thing? What's the first thing he does? <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure if it's the first thing he does, but the, certainly the most important thing he does is as uh, Jerusalem becomes the political capital of Israel, it now also needs to become the religious capital. And so he's got to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which has been traveling around for lo these hundreds of years to Jerusalem. We got to bring it in. Um, so that's that's kind of his first big like political move. And um we know from, I mean, everything dating back to Exodus, that um, bringing the Ark of the Covenant around was a big deal. There are lots of kind of rules and regulations that go around that. Um, there are rules of worship, but also there are rules about how you handle the Ark. Um, and we see that really come out in Second Samuel 6, because we get this wonderfully bizarro story in, in the midst of this about um, David leading a procession of, what is it, 30,000 Israelites um, carrying the ark. um, And the ark, it gets a little wobbly. And so as as a result, one of the people who's traveling with David, a man named Uzzah, um, reaches over to you know, brace, brace the ark, keep it from falling over. Um, And God strikes him down immediately because you're not supposed to touch the ark, right? Yeah. Well, it is one of the most difficult stories, I think, in the Old Testament. So how are we supposed to deal with this? How are we supposed to treat this as people of faith? Yeah. I mean, what was he supposed to do? Let it fall? I mean, what what would be better? And, And that crisis, that very question, is what David is asking himself. David experiences this, and it says... It says that it makes him afraid and angry because God had done this thing. God had, I think in the NRSV, the word that they use is from the Hebrew paraz. And so he says he burst forth his anger, um, which is an interesting way of, of phrasing that. But yeah, David's angry because God bursts forth in anger against Uzzah and kills him. And David's like, I don't what am I supposed to do with this? Like, this is too dangerous. I don't, I don't want the ark in my house. I can't contain this power. Yeah. I think for me, it falls in the category of stories and there's, there's several of them, but there's stories in the old Testament in particular that you look at and 
and they don't make much sense. And what seems clear is that we're missing information. Mm-hmm. But we know that, that, that the author would not have intentionally left out information that would make this clear. So in my mind, as the author captures this story, the meaning of it is obvious to everybody who's uh, not just writing it, but listening to it mm-hmm. in its earliest days. And that tells me that that I'm the one that's missing something. I don't know. This, this is how I deal with it, Calissa. This yeah. is how I kind of treat these stories. That tells me that I'm missing something. Because what I know is that God doesn't act irrationally. Mm-hmm. What I know is that God is just, not unjust. Mm-hmm. What I know is that God is good and not evil. If I know all of those things and I come across a story like this, then the only thing I know to do is to say, I don't know. I'm missing something that I need to know in order to understand this story. Otherwise, the only option left available to us is God isn't who we think he is. Right. And I I think the way that I have been dealing with this story and kind of the stories that come out of it um, has been to, well, let me take a step back. So when I encounter scripture, and I don't know, Matt, maybe maybe you do a similar thing, but I'm always kind of asking a couple of questions. And one of them is, what is this telling me about God? Um, and then the other question is, what is this telling me about God's people? And so for me, that has been the lens, that that second option. What is this telling me about God's people? And in particular, in, in David, because as you say, we do know God to, to be a God who... Um, wants good, who does not act out of um, evil or, um, you know, bad intent. Um, And so what's going on here is, you're right, probably we don't understand all the story, but maybe this passage isn't supposed to tell me about the nature of God. Maybe it's supposed to tell me about what's going on with David. And that's, um, I mean, I have to admit to a certain amount of skepticism of David in general. Um, I know, I know lots of people, they like the David. I have mixed feelings. And um, for me, those are kind of borne out by this passage, right? Because I read this and what I think about this is David is experiencing, David is intimidated, to be in this religious position. He's excited about it at first, and then he realizes the weight of it. Then he realizes that, like, this isn't just about glorifying him, right? It isn't just about, like, the procession of the ark and bringing it to his city that he's conquered, um, that, that there is something that is bigger than him at work here. And his immediate reaction to that is like, whoa, buddy, that is too much for me. I'm going to leave this here. Uh, He gets mad at God. He gets afraid and he leaves the ark with um, this gentleman we know as Obed-Edom, who would be a a servant of um, Edom. uh, And he leaves the ark in his household. He just says, okay, I'm going to step back from this. Have fun, buddy. See, I think it's interesting that uh, like you, you mentioned being skeptical of David, and I, you're certainly not alone in that. Um, I, this story for me has the opposite effect. And I think it's interesting because when I read that story, what I see is holy Toledo. David is 
He's one of us. Mm-hmm. This, this exactly how if you if I were in David's place, then and and if I saw God strike somebody down for doing something that I didn't understand, yeah, um, am I going to be mad? Absolutely, I'm going to be mad. Am I going to be terrified? Beyond terrified. And am I going to take a step back because I'm not so sure that I want to move forward with this thing? I, I think that's exactly where I find myself, which, which I don't know, maybe it's a paradoxical effect, but that draws me into David's story. And, and it draws me into who David is as a man after God's own heart. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally hear that. And I feel like maybe I should... Um Maybe I should qualify <laughs> that a little bit. I do think that this does absolutely humanize yeah. David. Um, and and I, I think that is one of the reasons that I then become kind of a skepti- skeptical of his motivations, right? Because I, I remember that he is someone like me who isn't always um, acting out of I don't know, as good an intention as, as we might hope, you know, we all have those moments, right, where we think, we think we're doing something good, and it turns out to be self-serving. And that, to me, is kind of like the crux of this particular narrative. Because um, I think I should probably move us through the next couple of verses and into chapter seven. We've got David, he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. He wants to kind of center the religious life of Israel in Jerusalem. Um, He has this mishap with the ark, but he finally hears that Obed-Edom's house has been blessed by the presence of the ark. So he's, um, he's now less afraid and more reassured and potentially maybe wants to get in on some of this blessing and favor. And so he returns, he reclaims the ark, and um, he leads it into Jerusalem finally. And he's, you know, followed by this whole retinue of people who are rejoicing. And it tells us a little bit about what what this kind of worship and procession looks like. It says that... um, He offers sacrifices as the ark is being carried. He dances before the Lord with all of his might, which we hear multiple times, actually. And I love it very much in my head. I'm thinking like Kermit and flailing arms and yay. (laughs) Uh, And um, he he says that um, he comes into Jerusalem. There's sound of drumming and trumpets and shouting. um, and he is worshiping with such wild abandon that it draws the contempt of his wife, Michal. Um, and that's kind of the next beat in this story, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that he kind of faces the derision of his wife for acting like an idiot in the sight of um, kind of the, the normal people, the regular people of Israel. I, I believe she talks particularly about him um, being um, uncovered in the eyes of his servants' maids, that this would be a vulgar thing to do, and you shouldn't let people see you um, in that state. Like, where's your pride, David? Um, and David's response to her is, I, I mean, why should why should I be proud? <laughs> I'm not dancing for you, and I'm not dancing for them. I'm dancing for the Lord. Um, this is this is how I do it. You know, (laughs) this is what he says. Um, and so this to me is like kind of, this to me is the most beautiful part of this story Okay, where he kind of can just like let, I don't know. He's willing to be a little foolish Mm -hmm. in praise of God. 
which is a thing that I think many of us don't like to so do. So you take it as a genuine expression of his praise or adoration or worship of God. I do. What yeah. <laughs> Do you take it as something different? No, I, I, I take it as well. I, Michael is, uh, sorry, uh, you, how do you say her name? Michal. I've always said a, Michael. That's so funny. I have, a, I have a friend from college whose name was Michal. Because yeah. she was named after this. So I'm assuming, I'm assuming um, that's how we do it. <laughs> yeah, my, my Texan background prevents me from saying things <laughs> appropriately. So she, David's wife, I'm going to go with that. David's yeah. wife is extraordinarily skeptical yeah. of the uh, genuine, of whether or not this is a genuine expression. And I think, I, I think it's an easy question to ask. And the reason it's easier for me to ask is because I can remember... So often, particularly when I was young, being in worship services and seeing somebody do something in worship that to me made them look not only foolish, but self-centered. Like they want the way I read that in my own self-righteous mind, just (laughs) confessing here was, gosh, these guys don't care about Jesus. They just want people to see how big a show they can make in worshiping God. Oh, yeah. And I think that's this scene reminds me of that. And while I don't think I, I don't think it's disingenuous on David's part, I do think it's easy to to find ourselves in his wife's place in this. Too. Oh, yeah. No. And I totally get that. And in fact, like. I think that for David, there are both of these impulses, right? There, He is holding in tension both his devotion to God and his desire to worship God in the best possible way and his desire to worship God in the grandest possible way. And so for, for us, the question is, are those the same thing? And that's, that's kind of what chapter seven starts to be about. Mm -hmm. So we have this to the way that I read this, this kind of moment of um, worship with reckless abandon Mm -hmm. is, is this kind of, in in one way, it's kind of exemplifying the most authentic, vulnerable worship. Um, And then the other side of that coin is what David starts driving towards in second Samuel seven. Are you so? Are you setting those up as um, opposite scenarios? <laughs> are you are, are you setting that up as what happens in six is genuine? What happens in seven is either disingenuine or misguided. Okay, um, I think that that uh, I would not go so far as to completely draw that dichotomy. However, I do think that God, God's self, has some things to say about what. David is driving for in seven, mm-hmm. um, which we should actually probably go ahead and name. Yeah. <laughs> you want to you want to summarize that for yeah, us? Yeah, yeah. The, the short the short of it is, um, and chapter seven, by the way, in Second Samuel is one of the most important chapters, not just in the uh, David narrative. It's really one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. But uh, the short of it is, David goes to God and said, "Hey, I've been living in a palace. I want to build you." a home. I want to build you a permanent temple. Right? God has always traveled in a tabernacle, a moving tent with the people of Israel up to this point, but establishing Jerusalem as the capital. Uh, now David wants to build a, a temple for God. And God says, essentially, thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've not asked for this, but I am going to build you a house. 
And there's a double entendre there because what God's referring to is house as in dynasty, house as in house of Tudors or house of Windsor. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what God wants to build is an eternal house for David. He says, one of your sons can build me a house, but I'm going to build you an eternal house. So that's the um, that's the outline and really beautiful language, I think, mm-hmm. that goes on there. But the way that I've always read it is chapter 6 lays the groundwork for David kind of missing in his request to build God a house. But God's response is so generous that to me it feels like a direct connect to David's desire to worship with abandon, his desire to, to praise God with abandon in 6. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think they're definitely connected. So, so um, I, I think the distinction here comes when David starts wanting to put onto God the expectations uh, of a king, of, of humanity, right? Like, David assumes that God would require this new kind of worship, that God would want this new home because it aligns with the things that David values. And God very much says, yeah, no, thank you. Um, I think exactly the the scripture says, wherever I've moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? No, you know, this is, he doesn't, he doesn't care. He doesn't want that house. What he wants is to be with God's people. And so, um, like to me, that's that's where the kind of worship with full abandon, worship with full vulnerability comes in. That God wants the home that is in in us, right? God wants the home that is within our hearts. Um, and I think it's a very human thing, a human thing to which I relate. I should say that you want to create something that is big and showy and elaborate because you think that that will glorify God. But God doesn't necessarily need that in order to be loving and to be generous and to claim us and to, like, grow within us. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's um, – I hope you are starting to to see if – you, if you're listening and you're with us, I hope you're starting to see how much is in chapter 6 and 7, how important those are, not just to David's identity – but to discerning a little bit more clearly who God is and what God desires and uh, and charting a course forward. Because the truth is, uh, chapter 7 gathers up everything that happens in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way through 2 Samuel 6, gathers it up and looks forward to everything that happens after 2 Samuel into through the end of Revelation. I, that, that is... Mm-hmm. Uh, you could charge me with overstating the case. But uh, I think you could make a legitimate argument that that's how important chapter 7 is. And understanding the context with 6, I think, is really important to understanding 7. Totally, totally. That is absolutely right. Um, And for you lectionary nerds out there, the the place you find the scripture in the lectionary um, is in Advent, right? Because we're talking about the coming Christ and the new way that God has promised to be with us. Um, even if it's not the way that 
yeah. David has wanted to be with him. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other place that you see this is, um, is on Palm Sunday. Yeah. With, uh, with the son of David returning yeah. to the city of David to yep. claim this throne of David. So, uh, Calissa, it's been a joy. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We had some good conversation. Yep. So remind us, we've got a little bit of a change during July for our worship schedule. Remind us where yeah. we're headed. Yeah, totally. Um, we are foregoing our outdoor service in the month of July. Guys, it just gets really hot. Um, so we will have one indoor service at 9 o'clock. That'll be our contemporary service in the sanctuary. Then we'll have another indoor service at 11.15. That will be our traditional service. And we We are looking forward to bringing that early service back as a chapel service beginning in August. All right. Thanks, Calissa. And uh, thanks for listening to our story. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Our Story podcast from Dunwoody UMC. Visit us online at dunwoodyumc.org and join us for online worship every Sunday. During the month of July, join us at 9 a.m. for indoor contemporary worship in the sanctuary and 11.15 a.m. for indoor traditional worship in the sanctuary. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to see our videos on YouTube. Finally, visit us online and click Sign Up for Emails under the Connect tab to get announcements delivered to your inbox every week. We hope you'll join us and add your story to ours.